Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the second ever Catholic Commentaries podcast. My name is Will Dethridge. I'm the executive director of Clarifying Catholicism. Joining me here today is Luke Parker, one of our esteemed writers. Good to have you here, man. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so today we're going to go through quite a uh, diverse array of topics, as we usually do. We'll uh, start off with a bit of uh, theology. As always, we're basing our articles, sorry, we're basing our commentaries on some articles that our fantastic authors have written. Links will all be in the description. So we'll start off by talking about uh, how early Catholicism was labeled as a cannibalistic cult by the ancient Romans. We'll then move to talking about a uh, somewhat recent and relevant event that we think deserves more attention, which is the Armenian genocide, a very heavy topic there. We will also talk about uh, one of our authors who wrote about the dechristianization of Latin America, and we'll also hit a couple of very uh, relevant current events, such as the recent debates about critical race theory and uh, the uh, upcoming vote or decision on whether or not pro-choice Catholic politicians should be denied communion. So lots of big stuff. Let's jump right into things right here uh, with cannibalism. Fun topic, wouldn't you say, Luke? I would say so, yes. Yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and share my screen for those on YouTube and for those on Spotify. We will uh, have this in the description. And I'd just like to read a short excerpt from the uh, author. It was written by, I believe, Jack Morgan from, uh, or Jackson Morgan from Auburn University, a great guy in a wonderful school with lots of budding young Catholics. And uh, I'll just read this quote here. It is important to understand, um, oh, sorry. Let me, I'm gonna cut out this part. And... Let's see here. Ah, yes. So Jackson started off his article by sharing a uh, quote from a Roman authority who was writing against the Christians, quote, now the story about the initiation of young novices is as much to be detested as it is well known. An infant covered over with meal that it may deceive the unwary is placed before him who is to be stained with their rights. This infant is slain by the young pupil who has been urged on as if it to harmless blows on the surface of the meal with dark and secret wounds. Thirstily, oh horror, they lick up its blood. Eagerly, they divide its limbs. By this victim, they are pledged together. With this consciousness of wickedness, they are covenanted to mutual silence. So Luke, I don't know about you, but uh, last Sunday was pretty eventful at my local church uh, when we uh, sacrificed an infant and drank its blood. What about you? You know, I think uh, we could have done a little bit better last time. Well, you know, clearly this was a smear campaign yes. against early Christians. Well, I was going to say, this is an interesting case of ancient fake news. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's a perfect description right there. That's right. Yeah, and, you know, in the article, uh, Jackson goes on to, you know, elaborate on precisely how this was all formulated. Um, he, he cites the author, uh, Joe Heschmeyer, um, the author of this account, uh, Felix, uh, one of the Romans, uh, he combined the details of the nativity uh, in which Christ is described as having been put in a uh, trough, you know, where the animals would feed, combining that with the uh, early uh, Eucharistic commands of Christ somehow. Um, but I think, you know, as Luke pointed out, it is an excellent example 
of uh, early uh, Christian fake news. And it's something that, you know, has persisted throughout a lot of uh, Christianity. Uh, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Well, for the amount of misinformation they were able to spread and in the limited um, media means they had compared to today, it'd be a wonder as to um, how those misinformation smear campaigns could be remedied as well. So if it took a long time um, for these smear campaigns to pervade the Roman Empire, how long did it take for those to be corrected as well? Yeah. And change minds. Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, it's incredibly relevant to us because back back in those days, uh, we, uh, uh, you know, we, we Christians had practically no influence over the predominant media. And you look at today and we don't really have much influence either. Um, I'm going to recommend a quick book that'll come up later in discussion. It's called uh, From Christendom uh, Apostolic Mission. It is a fantastic read. And it's very short too. Um, it was uh, written by a professor from the uh, University of Mary. Um, goodness, uh, struggle to remember the author's name immediately because it's not on the cover. But um, it really is a fantastic piece of work and we'll have that in the description. But what it, what it, what it does is uh, the author, he, he lays out the implications of uh, the modern secular age and how it mirrors a lot of the challenges early Christianity faced. And as we talk about a few of these issues coming up, it, it's gonna be particularly relevant because, you know, there you know, are, are a lot of good Catholics and Christians out there who have this nostalgia for back in the old medieval times when the church ran publications, when we didn't have to worry about you know, fake news as much because everything would come, well, we did in different respects, of course, but you know, that, that, that environment simply isn't what we have today. The world, the post-Vatican II world is a lot more similar, I'd argue, to the earliest days of Christianity from a theological perspective. I'd actually argue that Vatican II was meant to go back to the roots of how we deal with an environment like that. And Luke, I don't know if you have any insight, you know, know, you've had from reading this article or your personal experience in combating this kind of stuff. Because in many ways, what we're dealing with is quite similar to what the ancient Christians did with Roman fake news, uh, but you know it, it's quite intimidating uh, today as well. I, I mean, I don't know what are your insights into combating this stuff. Yes, so I think it's very different um, in the sense of who is trying to convince whom. Hmm. Um, and so back in the day, the Christians were fighting for their lives um, because, well, they weren't cannibals, um, and they tried to explain that. Um, but I think just the discussion, the argument is different. Now we debate those, those interested in the argument are, you know, fellow Christians, uh, fellow Christians who obviously follow Christ, um, but do not believe in the true presence of the Eucharist. Um, but it's a much different, um, angle of attack than, you know, trying to tell the whole Roman empire that you're not, you know, eating people that you've killed. And one thing that I've found to be great insight in this article is that um, early church fathers are trying to explain to the Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius himself, that they were not participating in cannibalism because the flesh of the person they were eating was still living, um, the resurrected Christ. And so that's something I found to be um, not only a great argument, but something um, 
truly insightful to our faith yeah. um, that we are eating and taking part in the flesh, ingesting the flesh and ingesting the life of Christ yeah. um, in, in new life um, in, in a way that there's no death involved other than his crucifixion, um, uh, but through his resurrection. So I found that to be an awesome um, explanation. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. And, you know, back then, a lot of people in the Roman Empire who were opponents of Christianity would would take a lot of things that Catholics believed and distort them to fit scandals of the age. And in, in those ages, it, it was scandalous, uh, obviously, to uh, in, you know engage in cannibalism. Uh, it was also scandalous to participate in drunken orgies. And it wasn't necessarily mentioned by the article, but it was, that was another thing that a lot of the Romans would go after is that Christians believed in radical egalitarianism. So, you know, upper-class women would dine with slave men and exchange kisses of peace and drink the blood of Christ, which, you know, physical, which in uh, its pre-consecrated form is wine. It's, yeah, (laughs) right, you know, drunken orgies, uh, cannibals. Yeah, you know, it's it's a wild time, this Christianity thing. You know, actually, you know, based on what the Romans were saying about us, maybe a lot of secularists, uh, a a lot of, in a post-hedonistic society, they would love this Christianity type thing. Man, so, you know, it's important to recognize what are the scandalous issues of today's day and age, right? I grew up in a world where I was told, even in a Catholic school, um, that, you know, Catholics uh, were told it was believed in a catholic school um that catholics hate gay people right that was something that was a stigma that, that stuck to us right and you know even even theology teachers would say you know this is what the church used to teach or something like that that we you know hate these people or we don't like these people and it's like that completely misrepresents what the faith is about and there there's quite a bit to fight back against because you know we we believe that marriage is something that is united by the procreative act and has nothing to do with hating anybody who yeah. whose lifestyle doesn't conform to that uh no. so you know the theology is complicated uh i mean there's, a, there's a thousands of years of tradition and you know in this day and age it's really easy to uh distort and blast out misconceptions of catholicism it's good that, it's always great to have people clarify stuff right Luke? that's right i wonder who those people oh man (laughs) there's more to get paid to do that um but anyhow uh moving along unless you have any more insights on that issue um i I think uh, another uh very relevant topic of concern this one doesn't get near as much attention as i uh, think it does is the uh, recent anniversary of the uh, armenian genocide and uh, for those of you who don't know i'm gonna read an excerpt from our writer Aidan McIntosh from the Catholic University of America wrote a fantastic commentary on this. Uh, let me go ahead and share my screen again for you viewers on YouTube. And I quote, the Armenian genocide was the first genocide of the 20th century predating the Holocaust and the Ukrainian uh, Holodomor. Yet it receives the least recognition in comparison to the other two. It was World War I's first brutal component, far more horrific than the widespread trench warfare depicted in Western history textbooks of the Great War. Between 1915 and 1917, Ottoman authorities deported between 800,000 and 1.5 million ethnic Armenians. The exact death toll will never be known, but 1 million is a common estimate among historians. 
The Armenians were one ethnic group in the diverse Ottoman Empire, although not huge. Systemic deportation and genocide on this scale was enough to reduce their population within the crumbling empire by around 90%. Had the Ottomans not been destroyed by the British army and their own economic weaknesses, a prolonged genocide could have entirely wiped out the Armenian community in the empire, excluding the diaspora and those lucky enough to escape. Heavy, heavy stuff. Luke, had you ever heard about any of this stuff in uh, you know, your history classes growing up? Well, I've heard the, of the Armenian genocide. I don't remember what context I first heard about it, um, but this was really the most enlightening um, article I've yeah. read on the issue. Um, so I'm grateful to Mr. McIntosh, fellow Cardinal, um, for helping us out with that. Um, one thing that really stood out to me um, was uh, uh, the establishment and um, power achievement of the Young Turks um, in that region at the time mm -hmm. and how they based their ideology on secularism. So it's interesting because, you know, I look at society today, um, not only in the United States, but around the world, in that there can never really be an absence of religion. Yeah. There's always a displacement with something else. Um, so, you know, just another example in history of how we must always be wary of how people say, like, we want to extract religion out of a certain context, whether it's school, government, um, that's, you know, that can be a big lie. It will be replaced with something. Yes. And it promise you it won't be nearly as good as Christianity. Oh, so. Look at the Soviet Union. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's the textbook case right there for uh, uh, that descent into madness and how, you know, without religion as a backbone of society, it has to be replaced with something else. Um, I, I think a great mistake of the uh, modern age, uh, particularly from a philosophical perspective, is the divide between uh, faith and reason. And, you know, Catholics, you know, even in a lot of uh, traditional uh, circles, I, I think make the mistake of falling into that trap that there is this fundamental distinction between uh, the two. And, you know, my response to that is that, you know, it's been very well covered by quite a few great uh, modern philosophers, especially in the philosophy of science, is that at the end of the day, every fundamental rule, uh, we call them axiom of physics and mathematics is based on some sort of assumption, some leap of faith our mind makes. You can only prove so much. Uh, there is no proof for one plus one equals two. It's just assumed, right? And, you know, while the uh, scientific tradition and the scientific method is, is a very complex topic to get into, I think it's, it's telling that you can't really separate leaping into a conclusion, which our, our mind autom automatically makes for us, one plus one equals two basic rules of logic. You can't separate that as easily uh, from you know, the hard sciences at all. You can't just say, oh, you know, religion is all about blind faith or, or feeling, because <laughs> at, the, at, at the end of the day, e even the empirical sciences involve some sort of leap of faith that yes, I believe, I have faith in, a world that makes sense and a world that has order that can be explained. It is something I cannot help. It was but a place to discover the Big Bang theory. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
Um, so, you know, this notion that we can separate the uh, mythical, faithful aspect of religion with something that is purely based on completely explainable science, it, that, that in itself is a myth. We, we can't do that. Uh, every system of logic, every belief system, uh, whether or not it's empirical, whether it's idealistic, it is ultimately based on a few fundamental assumptions or leaps of faith about how the world works that will vary from culture to culture. And yeah, this, this idea that, you know, uh, science is this great guiding thing that can dictate uh, to us exactly how, how to live. It almost makes a God out of science. In fact, a lot of the rationalists coming out of the age of enlightenment, that's what they thought God was, that God was the rules of mathematics and God was the laws of physics. So yes, physics and um, science in general don't explain first cause. Yeah. What, who's the unmoved mover? Yeah. And there, there has to be, and, and just even looking at the laws of physics, there has to be some initial force. Um, engineering major right here. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we learned a lot of that. And um, yeah. so um, nothing comes from nothing. Yeah. Um, unless there's something that creates something. And yeah. um, so it's a very simplistic yeah. way of putting it on my part. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah just from an engineering science perspective, mm -hmm. as limited as I've learned about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, this seems to make sense. Lana, and I think, you know, I, I like how you put it, Luke, because when you suck God, when you suck metaphysics, when you suck religion out of the equation, it completely, science completely collapses in on itself. There is a great, uh, there's a few great books that, uh, you know, go into this, uh, one of which uh, is written by Father Robert Spitzer. He's a brilliant theologian and a scientist, uh, a Jesuit from Gonzaga, uh, one of which is called The Soul's Upward Yearning. And he excellently explains how the natural sciences and the material sciences cannot function without God. They cannot without some greater metaphysical force that is beyond our conception, that is beyond our, uh, our own laws of physics. I mean, what do you call that? That's God. Why should we live in a society that frowns on God, that looks down on God, that wants to suck God and religion completely out of the equation, when in order for our fundamental beliefs, uh, our, our, our faith, in the laws of science, our faith in an intelligible universe rests on a metaphysical first mover. It rests on so many of these principles that escape the human understanding, that characterize uh, God. Um, Absolutely. Well, and also looking at how um, things in faith context sometimes defy science. Mm -hmm. um, I really encourage everyone to look at what Eucharistic miracles are out yeah. there. Um, really, really compelling um, and have stumped scientists who are experts in their field. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's amazing what God can do um, because he is the author of science itself. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, tying things back to the Armenian genocide, it was clear, you know, it's just another example of a society that claims that secularization can be the answer because it, 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 the, uh, the movement wasn't, you know, Islamic, uh, right, Luke? Um, yeah, primarily not. Islam had to do a little bit of it, um, but it was really the, the young Turks who were in power. Yeah, more cultural than yeah. anything else. Right. But yeah, efforts to 
get, take religion out of the equation, and especially in such horrific manners, really casting aside the dignity of the human person, which by the way was pioneered uh, through a very interesting combination of modern philosophy and Catholicism, especially in the United States Declaration of Human Rights. Um, a lot of Catholics were involved with that, again, showing the benefits of having religion integrated in your society and just, just the horrors that come out of uh, hyper-secularization, at which point I think we can transition to the next topic that we have, which is a different kind of secularization, uh, one that is uh, quite scary as well. Uh, you know, we are incredibly blessed in Western countries to you know, live in these societies that encourage freedom of religion and encourage us to live out our faith and, and encourage a, a diversity in how we express that. And you know, that, that same freedom that we have to embrace our faith can also be used, or that, that same liberty to embrace our faith can also be used to shun it and shove it aside. And that's what's happening in a lot of formerly Catholic countries. Um, Shout out to the author of this article on the de-Christianization of the Americas, Rafael Martinez. A fantastic article, I have to say. Um, actually, before I go into the quote, we'll elaborate on a couple of the themes in the article. And what he's basically noticing is that there is a mass exodus of Catholics in Latin American countries and a lot of immigrants from Latin American churches. I can't recall the specific percentage, but here in the United States, it is very troubling the amount of Catholics who end up leaving the church once they come here from Mexico and other countries, uh, you know, around Latin America. Uh, you know, he, Raphael does an excellent job at outlining a few of the uh, reasons that he thinks are the, a few of the driving forces or causes behind this. Luke, if you could visit a couple of those or talk about you know, your own theories around right. why this is happening, that'd be great. Well, one thing he dives into is the use of social media, the prevalent use of social media and the spread of secularism through there. Um, what social media does is it creates um, idols of ourselves and other people and, um, and not of God. And so, um, and that's obviously uh, an activity we in our generation spend a lot of time on. Um, and so it kind of trivializes, and also too, it comes from the family. Um, it comes from, what's your family's prayer life like? I am so blessed to come from a family that is steeped in prayer. Um, so, but not everyone is, and um, that's not always their fault. Um, but it does make a big difference in growing up, how they look at the involvement of faith in their life um, and that um, and how integral that is. But yeah, Mr. Martinez uh, does um, go into the use of social media and that and that connection with uh, leaving um, the faith in general. And it's not really so much of, you know, doctrinal disagreements with the church. It's really just kind of a fading away. Like, this isn't something I have to do anymore. And one thing I've experienced um, myself, and I actually live, you know, in a pretty heavily Hispanic community. I'm from Southern California. Um, so pretty close to Mexico there. And, um, um, and I'm not saying this is a particularly Latin American problem, um, but just generally our generation problem. A lot of people our age see confirmation as graduating from the Catholic Church. Yes, yes. Uh, so yeah. that's the time when 
you know, grandma stops nagging them about when they're going to get confirmed because grandma is super spiritual and I'm mm -hmm. not religious yeah. and I just want to satisfy grandma and then I'm done. Yep. Um, so sadly, that's kind of the state of our generation right now. Yeah. Well, you know, and I see a lot of this stemming from a uh, certain cultural mindset of radical individualism. I, I, I love talking about that all the time. If you follow this podcast uh, that is present in the United States, of course, I, I, I do appreciate a lot of the liberties that come with the, you know, the way our, our country is set up. But I think that, you know, it is doomed for failure. Our, our way of life, our culture, our ethics is doomed to failure if people misuse that liberty, uh, that ability to choose how, how we should order our society. Um, um, Tocqueville, you know, an amazing uh, writer, a French historian who commented on the United States, really admired how much power and influence we give to social institutions. That is the backbone of how this country was founded. Not government education, uh, not public schools, but social institutions, especially religious ones, to be that moral fiber that holds everything together. And credit to our Protestant brothers and sisters, because in many ways, for hundreds of years, they held it together. You know, it, it wasn't necessarily because of laws or, or, or formal decrees or mandates from the United States government that you lived a moral life, but it is because you sought the approval and you sought the, um, you, 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 you agreed with the wisdom passed down from people in your community, especially, you know, again, you know, it was largely led by Protestant communities here in the States, but especially in the 20th century, a lot of those systems just seemed to collapse. And what filled the void? A lot of uh, hyper-secularized companies and uh, politicians who, I, I think, in my opinion, see the old, you know, social order, the uh, older churches, and uh, you know, sources of wisdom as a threat to their power, a threat to their economy. I mean, companies like Facebook and Twitter, they don't thrive on people living moral, ethical, humble lives. They encourage us to be gluttonous, to be prideful. It's- Funny story on that. <laughs> so um, I knocked off the Facebook and Instagram apps off my phone. Good for you. I still have an account, um, but the apps are off. But Facebook is like, um, like a desperate ex-girlfriend. <laughs> That's great. Facebook texts me saying, someone you hardly know likes something like yeah go on tries to get you back it's absurdly yeah. hard to i think when yeah. you try to quit twitter it it'll, it won't delete your account permanently for 30 days mm. and it'll like send you these emails saying remember i want yeah. to come back so that's an excellent that's an excellent get behind me satan <laughs> analogy right yeah. and you know i think again you know as i talked about you know that great book from christendom the apostolic mission uh, we are in an apostolic age. We can't trust, and, and I say this as someone who might be a parent in a few years, we cannot trust the government to raise our kids. We cannot trust the media or iPads to raise our kids because those sources that we put so much trust in, whether it's naivety or just being lazy, don't have the best interests of a moral or ethical life in mind. They don't. And one thing that Raphael pointed out quite excellently is that when people come 
to the United States, or even when people, you know, our parents are just hanging around uh, doing their thing in their home countries, they neglect to keep an eye on what exactly their children are consuming in terms of content. What they're learning. They just assume that, oh, you know, they're going to school. They're being, you know, I went to school and, you know, back, back in my day, uh, you know, social institutions like the church were more respected. They're going to be all right. Oh, you know, back in my day, uh, you know, there were a lot of wholesome TV shows on. And they'll be fine. The kids will be fine. That is not the case anymore. More every generation that succeeds, we depart from a, a socially Christian environment in the United States. And that applies to Latin American countries, too. And it is happening quite quickly to them because just 10 or 15 years ago a place like Mexico uh, and you know that area it was very solidly Catholic so you know I, I like how Raphael draws attention to the role parents need to have when combating a lot of this stuff going on I you know well you, you touched on schools and that that's probably about yeah. half of his article yeah um, sure, but you can go ahead and yeah, so um, Raphael does make a good case for uh, the need for renewing the life of Catholic schools. And, um, you know, I'm from the West Coast. Catholic schools are, are yeah. present. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, <laughs> are present, but not as prevalent as they are on the East Coast. Um, but there needs to be a revitalization of Catholic education. Yes. Um, and he talks about how, you know, in the early days in the United States, um, Catholic bishops were essentially saying, you can't go to a public school because those are Protestant. Yeah. Um, you have to go to a Catholic school um, unless there's some extraneous circumstance. Um, and as schools became more secular, um, those, those um, rules were relaxed um, because, hey, they weren't teaching any religion at all. Yeah. Um, so, but I think... Um, Catholics should make a point of um, emphasizing a Catholic education yeah. for their children. And um, Raphael, I'm glad he said this because um, I was homeschooled K through 12, <laughs> um, that homeschooling is a great option. Um, I was blessed, you know, to have two devoutly Catholic parents who very much cared about um, my religious education and, um, and what um, historical context or what uh, history um, content I'm learning. Um, but not everybody can do that. So the presence of Catholic schools um, are very important yes. um, in, in preserving the faith yes. um, in those important formative years. Yeah, well, Raphael even, he, he quotes the Third Plenary Council of Baltimore, quote, parents must send their children to such schools, Catholic schools, unless the bishop should judge the reason for sending them elsewhere to be sufficient. Ways and means are also considered for making the parochial schools more efficient. It is, and I love this part, desirable that these schools be free. Every effort must be made to have suitable schools of higher education for Catholic youth. Now, the part about you know bishops decreeing that you must send your kids to Catholic school, I mean, have you looked at the prices? <laughs> That's not even remotely feasible, right? I mean, yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> we can talk about conscience, you know, right of conscience all, all we want, right? But even, even if we wanted that to be the case, what purpose are Catholic schools serving anymore today? 
And as a person who grew up in a Catholic school that was quite frankly Catholic in name only, that didn't, that so blatantly didn't seem to care for the faith uh, at all, it did not foster a lot of uh, Catholic values. I, you know, it, it really just seems like Catholic schools are a, you know, a place for upper middle class, rich parents to send their kids if they want them to maybe stay out of trouble and get a decent education. And, you know, that's not really what we need right now. Catholic schools were set up to be havens for Catholics who were persecuted by Protestants, socially persecuted in the United States. What's happening today? You know, Catholics who love their faith are persecuted all over the place. They're bullied on social media. Some of them are bullied in their own Catholic schools too. It's, it's a shame what's happened. And, you know, the, the solution, it's quite, it's, it's quite a you know, difficult problem to address. Cause like I said, we can't just make them free overnight, but perhaps uh, investing in alternative options of schooling that will somehow bring down costs, but also offer a quality education. I mean, yes. the, you know, the way things are going with public schools, quite frankly, which will be our next topic, uh, the way things are going there, uh, it might not, you might not need that many resources to offer things uh, better than what they have. And I think that, unless you have anything else to say, that's actually an excellent segue. Yeah, well, um, uh, just one more thing is sure. that uh, the funding of Catholic schools is very important for those who cannot afford um, such high tuition, mm. um, you know, and as the, as the Baltimore bishops were saying that <laughs> it'd be ideally free. It's like, well, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that takes us, that takes our pooling of resources. Um, you know, there's a reason why, uh, the Catholic church needs to charge for things like baptisms, mm -hmm. marriages. Um, ideally it wouldn't, but yeah. we don't give enough money. Um, yeah. So, and the church is a, a very large organization necessarily and rightfully. Yes. Um, so we, we can't forget that, that the church needs us and our generosity as well, as yeah. much as we're able. Yeah, so. that's for sure. Well, diving into our next topic about the state of public education, uh, a, uh, critical race theory is on the rise and people can't seem to stop talking about it. And for good reason. Uh, so we're gonna start off with a clip. Um, Luke, I don't know if uh, you can give some background. Sure, some background. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, currently at the forefront of um, in the news of parents who are disenchanted with their county school boards administration uh, right now is Loudoun County in Virginia. And so it's being internationally reported. I saw um, like a UK news organization reporting okay. on them as well. Yeah. Mm. So they're, they're stirring the pot. Um, but essentially, they are very um, angry at the school board about um, promoting sexually explicit reading material, um, which is not great for kids who are very young and, you yeah. know, even high school age, um, you know, Shakespeare has some stuff in there. But um, <laughs> the stuff we were seeing um, reported in, in the news here is that um, it just seems very over the top and unnecessary and abusive. Yeah. Um, and so these are things you just don't need to be filling kids' heads with, um, at least without, you know, some guiding context um, that, that support the dignity of humanity um, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, but going back to critical race theory, um, uh, a lot of parents are 
um, very flustered about this yeah. because you know what we're seeing today in um, in light of you know George Floyd's death, um, multiple um, protests um, over um, perceived injustice. Um, you know, a lot of it on race lines uh, between police and, and certain ethnicities. Um, parents have really taken the school boards to task um, in overcompensating for that. Um, so one of those things is critical race theory, yeah. um, which, you know, from the conservative point of view, basically creates more division and enmity um, between those of different races rather than having an actual discussion of, um, you know, hey, we're a little different, but we're mostly similar. So what are those similarities that we can really build on? Um, critical race theory seems to put um, white people in, as the, in the light in that they are oppressors, um, even though, you know, those of us who, you know, yeah. we, we're just here to live and, and be, be friends with everybody. And um, um, so, yeah. Quit oppressing me. Get me a drink or something. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can say that as a, uh, you know, as a Hispanic American, a Mexican American, and a proud one at that, you know, my mom came here as an immigrant, uh, you know, my, my family detests what's going on here. And before we delve into a few of the underlying philosophies of what's causing this, we're going to share a short clip of uh, one of the uh, uh, Loudoun County, Loudoun County. Yeah, Loudoun County yeah. parents who was complaining about this. Alrighty. CRT is not an honest dialogue. It is a tactic that was used by Hitler and the Ku Klux Klan. CRT is racist. It is abusive. It discriminates against one's color. Ban CRT. We don't want your political advertisement to divide our children or belittle them. Just a short snippet of a, a very passionate parent uh, standing up against a lot of this stuff. And, you know, it's, you know, as Luke said, it seems to reduce uh tensions in american society especially between you know different cultural groups uh, particularly uh white people which I, I have problems with the term white people to begin with i mean luke here is irish <laughs> I, I i know a lot of italians i i mean eastern europeans are they white I, some people say that mexican is white too uh, jews are they white i mean I think it's degrading just to use the term as if it's a monolithic identity. I mean, yeah. Luke, Luke's ancestors were uh, probably uh, more oppressed than <laughs> quite a lot of people. I, I, I can't go back and ask them. But, yeah. Um, yeah, but... yeah it, it is interesting because, you know, this completely defies critical race theory in particular. And, and here's one thing that should be known too, um, is that critical race theory is being disguised um, yes. in curriculum. Um, so people are pushing for not so much for equality, but for equity. Um, and critical race theory is kind of the, um, the supporting theories behind that and that white people are bad yep. and oh, you know, colored yes. black people yes. um, stuff, yes. you know, in reparation. Yeah. Um, and that, and that, um, and, you know, and what I said there is, is totally not meant to be offensive, just that that's what we're dealing with. And um, yeah, it's, 
it really pits pits different yeah. groups of people according to their immutable characteristics, stuff they have no yeah. control over, um, and um, sets them up in tribes. And this completely defies what Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, gosh, yes. wanted. He wanted us to judge each other by the content of our character. Yeah. And the thing is, and as you just saw in that video, the lady protesting critical race theory was black. Yep. And you don't, and CNN won't tell you this, a lot mm. of news sources won't tell you this, you don't have to look far to find a host of black parents, yeah. um, black intellectuals, um, very accomplished black folks who um, who don't buy into um, reparations. They don't buy into treating white people differently. They just wanna be equal and participants of society. And um, in my personal opinion, I think we've made a lot of progress in the 50, last 50 years yeah. and they would agree, um, but generally, society and our culture doesn't want you to hear that. No, no. And, you know, I, I, I think, so, you know, it, it's Marxist is what it is. You know, I, I, I'm, you look at a lot of the founding figures and who coined the term critical race theory. And a lot of these uh, programs, they, a lot of the programs are built on the intellectual efforts of people who embrace things like Marxism, you know, way long time ago, I guess in the context of church history, not terrifically long ago, we're talking 1800s or so, you know, uh, the philosopher Hegel understood history as driven between, fundamentally driven between two forces, you know, that would come into conflict with each other, right? And Marx interpreted that as oppressor and oppressed. And it is the fundamental right of that who is oppressed to rise up and overtake the oppressor. And eventually through this process, we will all be equal. For a long time, especially in the United States, this kind of language was derided as we see in Soviet Russia, as we saw in communist China, uh, especially under Chairman Mao, this was a complete disaster. And it, it was a complete farce too. Because if you asked, uh, quite frankly, if you candidly asked the uh, top 1% of people who benefited from this I, these ideologies in communist Russia or communist China under Mao, they probably didn't practice what they preached very well. You know, that's how you ended up with a lot of Russian oligarchs uh, who were quite, uh, <laughs> unequal to the rest of the uh, of society that was no. hardly uh, getting along at all. But well, front and center right now is a mm -hmm. scandal um, behind at least one of the Black Lives Matter uh, founders who's been yes. found owning multiple houses off the money oh, like millionaires, Black yeah. Lives Matter has mm -hmm. made, um, you know, out of people's donations. Yeah. Um, so really they're filling their own pockets, uh, stuff in their own coffers yeah. um, with donations. Um, uh, you know, and not promoting um, the cause no. of talking with police to see how we can reduce police brutality, which no. sounds great. Um, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. It is. It really it is. is. Yeah. I think that was the title of. Uh, <laughs> it was that, that was your article. That was my article. Yeah. yeah. Check out Luke's yeah. article in the yeah. description about um, that. That was a hot take back back then before you know, a lot of this came to light. Because if you, it, I mean, if you know, BLM is. It, it did. It, it did. And then they, yeah, it did. And then they found out that people were disliking what 
they were saying on their own yeah. what we believe page yeah um because yeah it you, you saw the wolf for what it was yeah um, and you know yeah, I, so they took it down i i think it I, th I think it goes back to what we've a topic we've hit on a couple times you know what what causes dechristianization why, why in the last 50 years have things completely collapsed and been replaced by i, I mean i was just doing some research the other day and it's astonishing how many young people think that socialism is a good thing or that communism is a good thing. And we're like, how, do, how does this happen? How do we go from the United States as a pillar of justice, albeit a flawed one, of course, as all countries are, defending itself against one of the worst human rights atrocities in the history of the world, the Soviet Union? How do we go from that to embracing a lot of these theories. And it is precisely because, as we stated in the dechristianization of Latin Americans, families have no idea at all what their children are being taught, whether that be in school, whether it be through social media. I mean, quite frankly, in the age of information, the shorter and the quicker a message is, the more you can dumb it down and reduce it, the more it's gonna sell, the more people are gonna retweet or like it. I mean, you can't explain a complex topic like race relations within a few hundred characters on Twitter. You just can't. But that's what kids see. And, you know, what 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 better uh, dumbed down idea than, you know, history being fundamentally driven by oppressor versus oppressed, as our friend Marx uh, said. And, you know, I, I will I will say that Marx had some very interesting ideas. I, I actually enjoy a lot of his critiques of capitalism and its social implications. I can't stand what he uh uh, where he says the solution yeah. it's great as a uh it is great as a uh diagnosis not a prescription uh but nonetheless it's quite easy to make the argument that yeah you know people just oppressor versus oppressed and it's going to work itself out if uh yeah. we well, go this direction our, our generation is all about what is easy yes and it is much easier well it's it's easy what is easy and then what makes me look the best yeah so um there's a whole um there's a whole black square post thing um did, i don't know if you remember that um this was a year ago mm. um after george floyd was oh was oh killed. oh yeah yeah yeah. Um, just change your is that, it, was, it was like blackout tuesday yeah like that. that's blackout. right yeah. yeah um so everyone just jumped on the bandwagon and not think that that's pretty that's pretty minor um point but um it's essentially to proclaim to your friends that you are on the right side, yeah. basically. But you're not even thinking about what the right side is. No. Um, and and I think you know generally that applies to Marxist socialist yes. ideologies. And that like yes, I do want the poor people taken care of, um, and I want the rich people to pay for that. Um, and I'm not rich, so. You know, um, it's easy for me to say that other people should fix everyone's problems. Yeah. Um, but and then also our generation is adverse to the concept of hard work. Um, and, you know, in university, I look to my left, I look to my right. And if an assignment is difficult, man, the complaints are never ending. <laughs> um, and, you know, I've done my fair share of complaining, but at the end of the day, I saw the value. Yeah. Um, in you know challenging ourselves yep. and um yeah you know people don't understand what a strong economy 
is built on, what a strong society is built on. And ultimately, it's built on the family. Yes. Um, one of the most difficult things to do is to establish and maintain a strong, healthy family. Yep. Um, and you see that in nearly any demographic, really. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, if the father's not around, oh, yeah. it's tough yeah. to stay out of poverty. Yeah. Really, really tough. Yeah. Um, so people owe it to themselves. They owe it to, you know, their future children, their current children, if you have them. Um, and to society in general um, and your community more locally yeah. to be devoted to your family and yeah. to take personal responsibility, own your life, yep. um, of course, in service to God. But um, those things are crucial yep. for any positive change. Yep. Well, there's an excellent quote. It was a BYU professor who gave a lecture once. So you can have a thousand mothers, but they will never be one father. And, you know, exactly. people, people ask all the time, you know, about, well, you know, yeah, LGBT community, you know, two moms, two dads. I mean, that's a huge complex issue in, in itself. But people need to be open to the idea that having a mother and a father, you know, the way that things were kind of biologically set up to be has its benefits. It, yes. it, it does. You know, from there, there are, there are so many studies that affirm the negative effects of fatherlessness even if you're wealthy actually uh, there was one there was one study in particular and i'll link to it in the description that showed that uh, mostly upper class daughters who grew up in fatherless households who uh, were also in middle upper class families um they experienced uh, puberty quite a bit earlier than the average girl does and there's a lot of different hypotheses as far as why exactly that is the case. But money can't replace a father, no. nor can it replace a mother. And, you know, people wonder why the Catholic Church is so obsessed with the traditional family. And that's precisely why. I'll, I'll actually link to, to the Marriage and Religious Research Institute, which is a great resource to why this is the case. But, yeah. you know, we're never going to shake the, uh, the stigmas that our church receives you know, our modern cannibalisms and, you know, we're never going to do that. We're never going to stop our descent into secularism and God knows what that'll bring with it. Uh, we're never going to do any of that if we just give up on a Catholic household, if we give up on a Catholic education, that's just not going to, it's not going to happen. And yeah. it's easier said than done. It is. Yeah. And, and you know, touching back on parents concerned about critical race theory, what kind of mindset that's instilling in their kids and their kids' classmates. Um, it's really pushing them um, to really go for some drastic change. Um, so these parents, like the one uh, you just saw in the video clip, in a six hour period, they collected 1500 signatures to recall six of those school board members. Um, now, you know, like I said, I'm engineering major, I deal with rates. I care more about rates than I do about lump sum numbers. <laughs> That's 4.2 signatures per minute of parents awesome. who do not want this for their kids um, and who take a vested interest in, in what their kids are learning. And um, so it's not just um, localized, excuse me, to Loudoun County. In New York, I believe it's New York City, there's a guy, um, who is pulling his daughter out of school 
has created a website. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, um, I'll have to, I'll have to find yeah. what it's called. It's called speakupforeducation.org. Yeah. So if you're interested, check it out, speakupforeducation.org. Um, yeah. And he's, his name's Andrew Gutman, and he pulled his daughter out of school over critical race theory, misinformation, um, you know, ideological indoctrination. And um, he's trying to start his own classical school yeah. um, and that just focuses on education, education in traditional terms. Um, and sad to say, traditional now is just teaching math, teaching English composition and writing, um, and, and you know, basic history, not ideological um, principles. It's not an indoctrination camp. School's not supposed to be like that. It's supposed to prepare us um, as participants in society, in our economy, um, and as individual thinkers. Um, so yeah, glad he's doing that. It's, it takes a lot of bravery and guts. Yeah, there's, there's actually one organization in particular that was started by a concerned parent uh, that I'd like to share really quickly. It's called the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, or FAIR. And so this was started by a parent who I think pulled their kid out from uh, one of the schools that was very pro CRT. And it boasts a very respectable uh, board of advisors, uh, including a few classical uh, liberals as well, uh, and a very pro secularist philosophers. Uh, I believe Steven Pinker, the ethicist is one of them. But um, you know, it, it stands for a curriculum and an education system that stands against racism does not go the route of CRT. So I, I definitely encourage people to check that out. But as we said, these are very difficult issues to navigate for sure. And you know, it, even how church officials are called to respond to them, it's not always black and white. And you know, quite, quite frankly, being a, in a uh, Catholic school environment, I think it's very easy for a lot of people to just say, well, you know, if I was Bishop or if I was Pope, I would, do this. They, they don't think about a lot of the long-term ramifications of these difficult decisions that our uh, wonderful bishops are discerning about. And the final issue we're going to talk about tonight is precisely on that matter. It is uh, whether or not uh, priests and bishops should be allowed to, or not even be allowed, but should deny communion to pro-choice Catholic politicians. Consider ones like Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden. Uh, I'll go ahead and share the screen of an article that Luke found if you want to just give some background to what exactly is going on. Yeah, so um, as Will said, it's currently a question right now of whether uh, at least Joe Biden as the second Catholic president of the United States and as a uh, proponent of abortion rights um, should be allowed communion. Um, and now it's gotten some traction in such a way that um, Archbishop Gomez from Los Angeles has contacted the Vatican um, regarding the USCCB's um, intention to kind of make a nationwide decision on whether or not uh, to allow pro-choice politicians communion. Um, so, but the Vatican had an interesting answer on that, mainly from Cardinal Luis Ladaria, um, and he's the prefect for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and he is also the Vatican's watchdog for doctrinal matters. Um, basically, he said it should be left up to 
individual bishop's discretion. And personally, I agree because bishops yeah. are the shepherds of their regions. Um, however, I think, well, if you're a bishop, what on earth are you doing? Right? <laughs> Giving communion oh, to man. someone who is, um, you know, actively pervading the, yeah. the evil of the, the, you know, the inexplicable evil of mm. abortion and euthanasia. Um, so one thing that was kind of funny that, and this is all from the Washington Post, by the way. So, you know, not really an ally of what's considered conservative Catholicism. No. Um, but one thing that I found interesting that Ladaria, uh, Cardinal Ladaria said was that it would be misleading to suggest abortion and euthanasia are the only grave matters of Catholic moral and social teaching that demand the fullest level of accountability on the part of Catholics. So sure, it's not the only thing, but I mean, what could be worse than killing innocent human beings, mm -hmm. um, babies who never had the chance to live and those in danger of euthanasia who, you know, are human beings too and do not deserve to be murdered. Um, and so another concern Ladaria brought up was that um, this would bring disunion within the church, this, this um, ban of communion to pro-choice um, Catholic politicians. And um, he said it would be best to be framed within the broad context of worthiness for the reception of Holy Communion on the part of all the faithful rather than only one category of Catholics reflecting their obligation to conform their lives to the entire gospel. So I get it, you know, of course, everyone should comply with church teaching because that is right and just. Um, that honors God by doing that and it dishonors God by, um, you know, avoiding church teaching in our life. But it must be said that politicians have a extra responsibility right. in um in you know at least not encouraging evil behavior like abortion and euthanasia yeah and also politicians are easier to pick out um you know so if there's an abortionist who is the member of a catholic congregation but is hard to single out i mean how's a priest going to know that if he or she presents him or herself um for communion um but at least a politician you could generally figure that out. <laughs> um, and so one thing, so the local Cardinal here in DC, Cardinal Wilton Gregory, what he said was that he plans to continue to offer communion to Biden um, when he comes to mass, saying that he does not want to begin a relationship with President Biden based on a penalty. That seems kind of funny to me because some, some popes had no problem like excommunicating kings in the medieval times, um, no problem, and and that that had ramifications, of course, in their relationship, um, and even temporal ramifications because popes had temporal power at the time, kings, of course, had temporal power, yeah. so that became an issue. Yeah. Um, but what what is that saying, um, Cardinal Gregory? With all due respect. Um, to him and his office, um, right. he's, he's prioritizing his personal relationship with President Biden over the president's soul. Um, and we'll get more into it later, but um, receiving communion while in the state of mortal sin is, 
itself a grave sin as well. Um, so there's Archbishop Nauman, who's from, uh, I think, Kansas. Yeah, Kansas City, Kansas. Um, and he's saying that offering communion to Biden, who's actively promoting things like abortion that are not Catholic at all, um, that completely defy natural law, says it can create confusion. How can he, Biden, say that he's a devout Catholic and he's doing th these things that are contrary to the church's teaching? Um, and there's another quote here from Brian Birch. He's from Catholic Boat. He says, any religious institution risks its own credibility and integrity if it allows its adherents to flout its core teachings. So what does that say to us as a church? If we're like, yeah, Biden, he's one of us. He's one of us, yet he's saying that abortion's okay on a national stage, on an international stage. What does that say about us as a church? What does that say about our beliefs? Have our beliefs changed? They obviously have not. Um, and so I, that at least can make people complacent and saying like, oh, I guess I don't know where the church stands now. So I guess, yes, I'll vote for abortion rights because that's the easy thing to do. That's what people want. That's what women want. I'm for women. Um, so take that as you will. But um, the Catholic church, in my opinion, cannot uphold that. Um, I don't know if you want to say anything yeah, before yeah. I this part. Yeah, certainly have a lot to say because uh, I'm torn. I'm torn. Yeah. Uh, I'm very, very torn on this issue and I continually find myself on either side of the fence. You know what Bishop Paprocki says about it? Uh, sure, what is, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. So Bishop Paprocki, who I had the honor of meeting a couple years ago, mm -hmm. uh, he's the Bishop of Springfield, Illinois, um, and he's also a canon lawyer. Um, but we've got some literature from him here um, that Catholics who publicly and obstinately advocate for abortion, including politicians, can and should be denied communion under canon law. This is what Paprocki said. He says, quote, I'm not talking about judging their soul. I'm talking about their external actions. If they're living in a way or holding positions that are contrary to church teaching, then the minister of communion has to deny them the sacrament. Yeah. The Catholic Church has always taught that abortion is a grave sin, and a politician working to expand abortion constitutes material cooperation with evil. And Canon 915 of the Code of Canon Law states that those who obstinately persist in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. A failure to consistently apply Canon 915 causes confusion, this is Bishop Paprocki again, and gives rise to scandal and that it leads to the impression that grave sins may not be so grave after all yeah. if there are no consequences for committing them yeah. it is important to remember that the ultimate goal is conversion and readmission to communion not exclusion and permanent expulsion from the community of faith even when a difficult decision must be made not to admit someone to holy communion until there has been repentance and reconciliation such discipline does not contradict the love by which it is motivated. And so Bishop Paprocki takes, I think, the perfect approach to this. And yeah. that th this is tough love, but yeah. love is the most important part here. Is it loving for a priest or a bishop to knowingly give communion to someone who is, you know, promoting grave sin and thereby imposing more grave sin upon yeah. that person, cr creating greater condemnation yeah. 
and judgment on that person. Mm -hmm. Isn't it more loving mm -hmm. to say, no, I cannot give you this. But once you've come to confession and retract these stances on, on the public level, you're more than welcome to communion. Um, so I love how he puts it. Yeah, I, I have some problems with it, mm. for sure. Um, and, you know, like, like I say, I, I'm very torn about the issue in general. Because I do think that every statement and every action that our bishops make, especially in a, because, you know, we're not in the age of Christendom. We don't control the media. We don't control the education system. Most Catholics uh, are, are, are more culturally Catholic than they are uh, theologically or church attending Catholics. And my concern, my big concern with uh, forbidding or denying communion to certain high profile people is the message it sends. You know, if Bishop Paparaki is really concerned with the conversion of people, I would argue, uh, but definitely argue, that denying Biden communion will result in an incredibly huge exodus from the Catholic Church and they will never come back, ever. I can guarantee, I can almost guarantee that that will happen. I now, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, it, it, again, it's not a black and white case. I, I think that everything has to be considered here because it's not just about the state of President Biden's soul or, you know, his stance with the church. But because he's high profile and because of the pervasiveness of social media and because the media will twist everything we do and say, it affects far more people than Biden. I mean, why, why do you think, why, why do Catholics support abortion? And I, I think for a lot of them, it, it, it's not that they think it's a morally good act. I think for a lot of them, it's, you know, the, again, ultra individualistic stance, which That's is compassion for the mother. Well, and, well it's just that it's their life. I don't, you know, now, now, of course, when, you know, the classic question, well, you know, what if he's got a gun to your head or something? Well, it's impacting my life now. Well, it's impacting the infant's life, right? So, but it, it, it's not out of malice that a lot of American Catholics support pro-choice policies. It is a result of a lack of education. It is a certain ignorance to why the church but what caused the ignorance? Well, it's because I don't think the church does a great job at evangelizing. Uh, parents don't do an excellent job at explaining this stuff. And my concern with taking the action of excommunication before we evangelize, before we educate, is that it will just completely collapse the little hold. Like it, at least Catholics who support abortion or support or not support abortion, but support protest policies, at least some of them might be coming to church every once in a while if you do that they're going to stop that's my concern does that mean we shouldn't do it altogether no no but but i think that's a concern there needs to be a lot of tact with this issue and yeah. there's a time and a place for everything so you know I, 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 yeah, I would, yeah no i totally hear what you're saying yeah. i would argue that the church cannot save everybody because there's personal choice that is involved right in, in salvation we, we need to accept willingly on our own christ's salvation yeah um and, and through the graces of the church if you have people who you know hear about what the church teaches and no doubt biden has um about hey the church does not like abortion and here's why and and oh the church happens to be correct about it um yeah and and I don't think 
it helps Biden be convinced of anything by continuing and, and yeah. denying communion is not excommunication. I, I think it should be stated the, again, because I, I think these, and again, I made the mistake a couple times in this podcast too, just because you're pro-choice doesn't mean you think that abortion is morally permissible. Uh, you know, like you say, I, I, I'm free to take drugs. Do I think that we should, you know, have policy in place that prohibits people from taking certain drugs? That might be a bit overkill because it throws off the balance of civil liberties there. And I think that's the mindset that a lot of pro-choice Catholics have. Is it morally speaking, would they ever want to get one? No. But should someone else be able to make the decision? That's where they'll say it. So I, I just want, I, I want to harp on the distinction there. I, I mean, again, I think if conversion and, you know, glorifying God's name is the end result, which has always been, which Christ and the earliest apostles did an excellent job, quite frankly. I mean, yeah, they were tough when they needed to be. And it, it's that balance of when's it good to be tough? And when do you need to empathize and go down to the level of the sinners and eat on the dirt floor, you know, with the tax collectors as Christ did? When's the right time for admonishment? And when is the right time uh, for, you know, yeah, yeah for, for understanding them and uh, approaching it like that? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know, let's say that you uh, discovered an island that had no uh of people who committed child sacrifice or something like that mm -hmm. and the people had no idea about what this christianity thing was all about and the first thing you do is condemn them and condemn their politicians condemn their way of life and you know say you know issue out all sorts of harsh excommunications which again you said you know it's not necessarily the same thing no, but just for my no, example you're harsh yeah. You're harsh. Your guns ablaze in harsh, and I know and I understand, you know, the rage, the and the passion that many more conservative Catholics feel. And on instinct, we just want to hit them back with as much as we got, you know. Yeah, not me. Not but me. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but I, I get that, and yeah. I, I I know that that's the mindset that a lot of people can come from. But again, it, it's like, you know, are are you gonna are we gonna scare people away from a relationship with Christ if we do things like this and I, I mean like you said you can't save everyone but you know go back to the you know island that no, doesn't know Christianity yeah. I, I like a more subtle and grad, gradual approach to things rather than you're excommunicated I think we need a, a greater focus we need to focus our energy more on how are we gonna improve education how are we gonna inject Catholicism into media how are we gonna gradually over time convince people that this is the right thing to do. Uh, I, I think efforts like that are more fruitful than, but I could be wrong. I mean, we, we could excommunicate well, and well, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I am not one for excommunication. Or, I, sorry, I think, but denial of communion. Sure. That's the message that would come across though, okay. certainly. Yeah. It, it would. <laughs> well, one quote I've, I've heard that I really like is, uh, I don't know who said it, um, but, the truth hurts, but it yeah. never harms. And and Christ took that to heart. Um, we only have to look at the Gospel of John, chapter six, in which he lost many followers over his um, his teaching on eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Yeah. Um, 
And and here's a point uh, with the denial of communion, hopefully to be you know remitted if someone um, repents. Yeah. Um, but there has to be a connection between what we say and believe and what we do. And that connection, um, I think there's no better place for that than communion. We, we revere the Eucharist and there's a reason why we do that because that is Christ incarnate. That is Christ in the flesh um, and he deserves our genuflection. Yeah. And when it comes to, um, is it right or is it not right to, um, to give communion to someone, to anyone who's in grave sin, you know, it is never right to defile the precious body of Christ. And no matter what we think about it, no matter what great relations we want with the politician we're about to give communion to, or anyone in grave sin we're mm -hmm. about to give communion to, we are actively defiling Christ. Um, his body. Um, and so it, at that point, it doesn't really matter what our intentions are. It matters what's happening. You know, what's happening is his, his body is being defiled and that person, you know, is taking on more judgment. And so, you know, I don't know in the future, if I was ever a priest, I would, I would not want to, I would not want to impose more of that burden onto that person. It is much more merciful to that person and their soul to be no wait let's talk first <laughs> you know, you know com yeah. communication a lot of it uh, i mean communication is just key here because if you deny yeah. someone communion and that's not the message that come across but it is you're unworthy you're excluded you're out don't come back it it can it can happen it, it especially can happen. in today's age it can happen, and i but, think we need to take yeah. that into account we need to take it very carefully and seriously again we're not in it we're not in the age of christendom when someone's like denied communion oh okay well i'm just gonna go to confession we're in the age of you're denied communion and you feel a personal attack against your character because we're our generation quite frankly it can be a bunch of snowflakes sometimes well, and i, I so think it's about what message is being sent right and Christ was made incarnate to sinners. We're a church of sinners. Oh yeah, and everybody. Mortal sin yeah. is impacted by ignorance. And again, I don't think it's wise to treat someone who's an avid churchgoer who commits a mortal sin the same way as it would be to treat a uh, you know I, I don't know again you're evangelizing out in an island that never heard of this Christianity thing. I, I think it's fundamentally sure. different to admonish someone who made a mistake out of ignorance than someone who knowingly committed a mistake who has that relationship. I mean, I always draw attention that Christ admonished the Pharisees and his own disciples far more than he did the people who were ignorant of his message. Well, what so, invited be like a, a disciple as a baptized Catholic? Well, again, it's the message it sends though, right? I'm not, you know, the state of Biden's personal soul, I mean, yeah, that's of concern, but right. what concerns me even more is especially in the age of social media, how the millions of Catholics who interpret that action from the church, what's gonna happen to them? You know, Biden himself, I mean, yeah. uh, right? But again, and again, that doesn't mean that I'm completely against this. I just think sure. it really needs to be taken into account. I think there's a time and place for it. If anything, you know, 
you know, if this is something that the bishops choose to do, and I respect their wisdom, I, mm -hmm. I, I, I highly doubt it. And I do think there is to be a case to be made that putting it to a simple vote. Yeah, no, yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't think yeah, that's a good that idea. Be... Um, it should be left up to the bishops. But I, yeah. I think every, I think, in my opinion, mm -hmm. every bishop who, who, you know, has this problem presented before them should go with denying communion mm -hmm. to an outspoken pro-abortion or pro whatever it is yeah. completely con and, and that's a thing too is that, is that there are some things that are that are great areas how do we handle immigration um that is a great area yeah <laughs> um but whether or not we allow abortion that's not a great area no, um no, no. but i probably should have led with this quote um hmm. but it's a quote from first corinthians um a letter from saint paul to the corinthians um, it says, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. Right. A person should examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, again, I do have to stress that this isn't about people who say, yes, let's go commit abortions. This is about people saying, I believe that a lot of people, which is considerable. I believe personally abortion is bad. I will never commit it. But what the other person down the street that I don't know does with their lives, and again, I don't. Sure. I think that's just because of ignorance. Well, and that's sure, and that is philosophical that's one ignorance. Thing, but I, I think what President Biden has done is something different, and that and that he's he's spoken for abortion as a right. Well, yeah, and, and and to fund it, to encourage it. That's a that's another. So that's a little different, funding, I think, yeah. than someone who you know is just doesn't really see the difference right and you know um it's less so, about you know yeah. uh the right to do drugs versus a federal program that would pump out marijuana right distillery yeah. or distribution centers and stuff like that cocaine yeah for every household yeah no yeah. That, that's that's another thing you know yeah. right there but i don't know i mean I, I think that every decision that anyone in the church has to make uh, does involve an analysis i mean it's like you're waging a just war almost you have to look at what's gained and what's lost, not simply, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if President Biden's soul, that, that's, that's his personal relationship well, with God. And that's yeah. something he'll, he'll have to reckon with, uh, you know, when, when his time comes. And but, you I, know. I think, I think, and, and point taken, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so it, it does need to be considered. I think so often we in general get too caught up to a fault of what is good for the church. It, it should be what's good for souls. What is good, what is good in honoring Christ? Yeah. Um, we never honor Christ when we defile his body. Um, and, and that said, none of us are worthy to receive him. Yeah. Uh, we we yeah. say that right before yeah. we receive, Lord, I'm not worthy yeah. to enter my roof. Yeah. Um, but there are, you know, um, serious circumstances of sin, um, like grave sin, mortal sin. Yeah. Um, that in no circumstances should any of us be receiving communion. Um, so, you know, again, this isn't particularly to single out politicians, but Paul, they're, they're the ones we know about. So, well, they're public so, figures and yeah. they have a lot of influence. So, yeah, if, so. If, a priest, if a priest were to be, you know, were to have intimate knowledge of everyone in his parish, right, yeah. and all of their daily habits and, um, you know, say there's there's a couple who are living together before marriage yeah. and are and it's come to public knowledge that they have been having extramarital relations. You know, 
that's a state of mortal sin. And so that priest, you know, would probably have to deny them communion yeah. as well in the context. And I would highly recommend he follow up with this couple and say, hey, this is not meant to exclude you. Please keep coming to mass. But please understand that you cannot keep this activity going. Yeah. This is a sin. Um, be before receiving communion, you're welcome to confession anytime. I'm still your friend. I'm still here to walk with you in your spiritual journey. Yeah. Um, it's it's supposed to be an act of love. My it is it yeah. is an act of mercy. It's, oh, it's, act of mercy and love. And it's yeah. like I don't know. I, I can. I, and that I, must be communicated. There there are a lot. Well, I mean, that's the thing is how it's done. Too. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I know a lot yeah. of Catholics whose parents were divorced, mm. and because of how they were treated by priests those kids never wanted anything to do with the church for the rest of their lives that's unfortunate yeah. um and again that's why i i, I stress because you know we are about the salvation of souls not just one guy's soul so the excommunication right. of biden how that's going to impact all those millions of souls that's what you know and, and i meet catholics all the time who will say well and this is i know this isn't what you're saying because yeah but i have met a few rather interesting people who have uh, the conviction that well you know what if uh, we excommunicate him and a bunch of people leave, whatever, good for them. They're in hell. All we need to worry about is ourselves. I'm like, uh, you know, so uh, I, I, and I unfortunately do run into quite a few traditionally minded Catholics who have that mentality, not you again, Luke, but mm -hmm. who do. And we need to be very wary of those kind of arguments that are used to advance this. Because I mean, I, I think as we can agree on, this is a really weird issue and it's uh there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of stuff that needs to be weighed into it um it's not just about whether or not something's right or wrong it's how we're called to respond to it i mean these kinds of debates have been happening throughout all of church history i know i know you mentioned that several kings have been excommunicated but i will assure you that their excommunication or their denial of communion was not straightforward it was quite messy i mean you especially look at a lot of the uh how i mean a lot of the uh First church councils were run by emperors who were doctrinally incorrect. Later, we determined them to be heretical. Yeah. Um, and, and yet they were still trusted with a certain amount of authority. So this idea of reception of communion from people who disagree with church teaching in power isn't unprecedented. Is it morally correct? Well, again, that's what this discussion is all about. But we've been here. In, in many ways, uh, you know, and we've, and there've been various answers and various solutions and um, lots of different results. I mean, especially as the church's power was waning. I mean, it was a lot of this ba battle over how much influence, I mean, I mean, plenty of times where a Pope has kicked a king out and then readmitted them at gunpoint and then kicked them out again. And then, you know, so I, I don't know. I, I, I would hate to be a bishop making that yeah. decision yeah. right now, but you know, I guess that's why I'm a, a, I'm a, I'm a theologist, not a bishop, right? Um, anyways, well, uh, I mean, this has been a great discussion covering all these topics, Luke. It's been great to have you thank as co-host, and hopefully we'll have uh, many more. And uh, thank you all very much for joining us for another episode of uh, the Catholic Commentaries podcast. Uh, be sure to, uh, you know, leave some recommendations in the description below. Follow us on YouTube and Spotify. Have a great day. God bless. Mm -hmm.